Well, good morning, Hope. It's good to see you. My name is Davis, and I am bad at trivia. <laughs> For uh, the first two minutes of that video, I just I gave a disclaimer. Apparently, it didn't make the cut, but I just said, this is my worst nightmare. I am so bad at trivia, and I don't want to be on a screen doing it because I'm, I'm really bad at it. But lo and behold, I was up there doing math and science things and getting them all wrong. Uh, but that's not why we're here this morning. I, I first want to begin by asking you a question. Do you know how to behave? Do you know how to behave? And are you sure? <laughs> this was the question posed by an article that uh, recently found its way onto my phone. I'm doing that subscription to Apple News Plus, a trial. Anyone News Plus subscribers out there? Yeah? Nope. Okay, just me. Uh, we're trying it. Um, this was the one that said, this is your evening read tonight. And it said, do you know how to behave? Are you sure? How to text, tip, ghost, host, and generally exist in polite society today. Good clickbait title. It got me. I started reading it. There's 150 rules that these two people put together since COVID saying polite society has changed since the pandemic and, and let us enlighten you as to how. And I, I'm here, to, I want to read a few of these to you and show you that uh, the editor's choice of the photo is very fitting for this article because even my, my wife and I were actually listening to it together and, and both of us at some point just looked at each other and we're, our palms are sweating and we're just Wow, we are breaking all the polite rules, apparently. Let me, let me share some of them. Number nine, if someone starts telling you a story you've heard before, you have two seconds to tell them. And if you don't tell them, you have to listen. You have to endure the story. <laughs> Number 50, if your burger is becoming a salad, your restaurant order modifications have gone too far. I think that was actually, <laughs> that's fair. Number 20, don't describe TikToks. You can't do that. <laughs> it's more boring than describing dreams. <laughs> I've described a lot of TikToks. I think it's fun. Uh, number 83, go on, take the last bite. I know, these were not Midwesterners who wrote this. This is suspect at best. Then the, you, you have a number 72. I had to put this one on the screen because I was just blown away by this in the worst ways. If you like them, text people within three hours of hanging out with them. And then there's just a paragraph, and I, I couldn't even get it on the screen. It had a read more tab where you had to actually read on about what this actually means. Meaning, if you're together with people and you enjoy that, you, you have to let them know. Otherwise, are you really friends? I did, oh, I hate this one. I hate texting. I like the people I hang out with, but I never do this. We did this this weekend. Actually, I did text friends after hanging out with them, but I just said, I forgot my baby's thing at your house. <laughs> Sorry, can you bring it to church on Sunday? <laughs> and then the last one, number 14, never send an edible arrangement. I had to Google it. There are seven edible arrangements in the Twin Cities. I just wonder if the business owners are like, what the heck? Millennials and Gen Zs, we're still cool. You can still send these. But maybe, maybe you experienced, a, these, are, these were some of the tongue-in-cheek ones, but 150 rules, shoulds. Here's how you need to behave in modern society. And I just can't get over how awesome that image is. Just burden-heavy sweat, bug-eyed, one eye is bigger than the other. As you hear these rules of like, I feel all the finger-pointing, all the exposure of people saying that I am not measuring up to today's standards. 
Well, why am I, why am I sharing? Well, they're very funny. Uh, but two, we are in a series in the book of Romans, and today we are going to be looking at the shoulds of the Bible. Yay, the shoulds of the Bible. Uh, I, I'm very excited about this passage for many reasons, but I'm, I'm even more excited about just being in Romans. This is a book that has regularly intersected with my life and created change. Uh, probably the, the book in the Bible that has created the most change in my life of just even life direction. I'm, I'm here this morning on stage because of this book. I wouldn't be in ministry if it wasn't for Romans in the ways that it unpacks not only the story of the Bible, but human history. I took a, a Romans retreat here at Hope when I was a junior in college, and it just flipped my world upside down. I, uh, before that, had experiences with the Bible that were mostly like kind of just pieces here and there, you know, a Bible verse a day, or a, I feel like I had an understanding of what God wanted from people, but it was actually walking through this book that opened my eyes to how amazing God is, but also what he's been doing in human history. I, I liken it to one of my favorite all-time characters in, in Disney, the magic carpet. Any magic carpet fans out there? A few of us, yeah? Uh, this, is, this is the character in Aladdin where he takes uh, the girl he's trying to woo on a magic carpet ride, but the whole concept is, I, I can show you a whole new world. You've been existing down here, but let me take you high up and show you the vastness of this kingdom, of this, of this life that is around us. And the book of Romans does this. The book of Romans shows us a whole new world. I, I almost sang it. Am I going to? And even today, I, I'm hopeful that we can see this whole new world that God has been, from God's perspective, what he wants to show us in his word. And it's only going to be one verse. This is our passage. This is our text today. Romans 1.32, one verse, a whole new world is our objective. It's audacious. It says this, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Hear that one more time. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, if you're joining us for the first time uh, or the first time in a while, we are, this is the fourth of, of four weeks that we are spending in the last half of Romans chapter one. The first week, we, we learned about how the wrath of God is being presently revealed against all manners of unrighteousness. All evil is being put to task by God's wrath because of week two, the great exchange. That human beings exchange the truth about God for a lie and they worship created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And then last week, Pastor Kaur masterfully led us through the, the ways that this compounds, that great exchange actually sinks deeper into our hearts until that which is evil is called good. That which is unnatural is called, oh, that's natural. Which brings us to today, God's little L law is what we're gonna be looking at this morning. The shoulds of the Bible. Specifically, what is this little L law? What is this righteous decree? That's what I want us to think about. And, and what does it look like to be under it? especially in the, in the scope of the biblical storyline, but also human history. Again, a whole new world, a whole new way of seeing the way God has been telling history since the beginning. And lastly, just why does this matter? How does this actually intersect with our daily lives? So to begin with, what is this righteous decree? It says, though they know God's righteous decree. If you have another uh, version of the Bible, the New American Standard is one that uses this word ordinance. Righteous decree is just the ordinance of God. 
What is this? this? This ordinance of God, righteous decree sounds kind of like big religious language. And so I want to borrow from Christopher Wright. He's a biblical scholar who says, says this, the first thing to note is the range of specific words by which the law is called. So that's what we're talking about with righteous decree, ordinances. Testimonies, words like precepts, statutes, commandments, ordinances, ways, word. What all these terms have in common is their assumption that God gives the law in such a form that people can order their lives by it. So right out of the gates, we're talking about the law, the ordinance, the righteous decree of God. And and the law is a big topic in the biblical storyline. In fact, Moses uh, writes about this law, according to later in Romans. In Romans 10, we we hear Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. He's quoting Leviticus 18, I believe. And he's saying, this is what the law sounds like. If you do this, you will live. What's interesting about this passage, though, in Romans 132, is is we seem to have been talking about everyone, not, not Israel or God's people who have the righteous decree of God, who have the capital L law of God. But Paul has been talking about them, they, everyone else, Gentiles who do not know God. And he actually says they have the ordinance. They have the righteous decree of God. This is very confusing. But, and not only this, they have this knowledge of this law that those who do these things or those who disobey this law deserve to die. Where does this come from? Well, you have to zoom out and go all the way back to the beginning of the, the, the Bible stories. You have to go back to, the, to where these things begin. Pastor Cor took us there this week or last week, but I want us to see it again in light of this text in particular, that, that they have an awareness of the law, that awareness of what to do. And if you don't do it, you deserve to die. It's almost verbatim what God says in the garden in, in Genesis 2. When God commands Adam and Eve, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it, you will certainly, and here it is, die. So you have this tree, this knowledge of good and evil that if you eat from it, you will certainly die. You have an awareness of the righteous decree that if you do this thing, you are deserving of death. So Paul is doing something really fascinating here, something surprising in his ability to describe what's happening in the world. He's taking us, back, zooming out and going, oh my goodness, this starts all the way in the very beginning. Before sin even enters the world, we have this very description that the knowledge of good and evil is actually, if if you eat from this knowledge of good and evil, you will be deserving of death. And so God's little L law right here out of the gates, we learn happens in the very beginning when human beings turn from God and they say, I'm going to choose having an awareness of that which is good and that which is evil apart from you so that I might have life on my own. When Adam and Eve eat of this, they are given this knowledge of good and evil, in other words, so that every human being since then has the righteous decree, the ordinances, the knowledge of good and evil etched into the human heart by the very finger of God. When we took from that tree, in other words, we now have this awareness of what is good and what is evil. And this has been the story. So that when we say, do you actually know how to behave? The biblical storyline would say, yes. 
Every single human being has a full awareness since the beginning of that which is good and that which is evil. Now, it gets complicated, of course, as we've even been learning in Romans 1, that that knowledge of good for generations has been suppressed and it's morphed into exchanging good for evil and evil for good and natural for unnatural. But in our heart of hearts, beneath all the suppressing, there is a knowledge of good and evil, God's little L law that is written on every human heart since the beginning in the garden. Which is why I think you can, generally speaking, look from culture to culture and find the ways laws are created and they, they generally reflect each other. Again, there's gonna be complications because truth gets suppressed. But things like, hey, don't kill somebody. You can learn that in the West, you can learn that in the East, you can learn North and the South. Generally speaking, cultures share this knowledge of good and evil. But I wanna go back to that garden one more time, very quickly, just to ask, what is so tempting about taking from this knowledge of good and evil, taking from this tree? And even more, what is God doing with these two trees? Because according to Genesis 2, verse 9, in the very center of the garden, you have these two trees. You have the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it's not an accident that God says, this is in the middle of the garden. In other words, this is the center of what I'm gonna be ultimately describing to you as human beings. And the story itself is gonna be an unfolding of what does life look like under these trees? The tree of life or the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Not one and the same, two different trees. So what then is so tempting to, to take from this tree that God said, don't take or, or you're gonna die. Gerhard Ferde is, is helpful in answering this question. He says, the temptation in the garden is to become like God. Our temptation is to reach for something that does not belong to us, to refuse our creaturehood, that we were made by God, to refuse that, to refuse our humanity, to refuse to take care of the earth and ultimately to become a God. That, as St. Augustine rightly saw, is the essence of what sin even is. It's, it's pride. Sin is, a, is located not primarily in the body. It's not what we do, ultimately. Those are symptoms of sin. But rather precisely in our spiritual pretensions and ambitions. It is our godlike aspirations that destroy our life and seduce us to make life miserable for our fellow human beings. It is our godlike aspirations that destroy our life and seduce us. I just, what a, what a fascinating way to start to retell how history was unfolding from God's perspective. That that original temptation to take from this tree of knowledge of good and evil is to say unto God, I think I got this. I think I'm gonna be master and commander of my own life. I think with a knowledge of good and evil, I will be able to do the good and avoid the evil and you will owe me righteousness. You will owe me salvation. You will owe me what I deserve, which is goodness, eternity, life existing as an independent being of you, God. And Gerhard Ferdinand says, this is, the, this is the temptation itself. Where I want to go from here is just ask, how does this go in the storyline? What does life look like under this tree of knowledge of good and evil? Life under this little L law. Life under what Leviticus, Leviticus 18 four to five ultimately says, which is, if you do this, you will have life. How's that go? I wanna look at three examples with you this morning of ways that the do this and live lifestyle shakes out. How does it pan out in the storyline? Well, it doesn't take long to see the first effect amongst relationships. 
Once Adam and Eve take from the fruit, they take from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And you, the first time you, you read this, you kind of are asking the question in the back of your mind, like, okay, I, I've heard before that sin is a big deal, but how big of a deal can it actually be? I mean, all they did was eat a fruit, right? To which Gerhard Ferde and the quote that we just looked at said, no, no, this was way bigger again than just behavior. This had everything to do with the heart. And the ramifications are going to be enormous. It's like a rock dropping in a pond and the ripple effects just continue to grow. And it, the first ripple effect is, is huge. It's the first relationship that we see that gets distorted is human being four and five. So Adam and Eve have, have two kids, Cain and Abel. It's a very famous story of, of Cain going out to the, to the field and killing his brother Abel, right? Well, this starts with both of them offering something to God. God accepts Abel's offering and he doesn't accept Cain's. We're not told why. Later in the New Testament, we will, but we're not told why in, in Genesis 4. And it really pisses Cain off. He's really, not a, he's really upset with God. He's really upset with himself. And ultimately, he's starting to de- de- devise a plan to take out his brother. And God sees this. And God brings a do this and live into the conversation. Have you seen this before in Genesis 4? He says, if you, this is God talking to Cain. If you do what is right, how would he know what is right? Well, again, he's, they've taken of the fruit. There's, there's the little L law written on every human heart. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do this, won't you have life? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The description here of sin is is something that it almost feels like you can just put your arm out and push it down, right? God's just saying, hey, do what is right and and you can master this thing. You can rule over it. You can have life. You can be accepted. But if you don't, sin desires to have you and and it will have you. Well, it doesn't take long for us to learn that sin has already had him. Sin is already operating in his heart and and Cain's biceps are not strong enough to keep the crouching sin down, right? The the crouching sin has stood up and it has devoured his heart and his intentions. And we learn. Now Cain says to his brother, literally the next verse. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and he killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Now watch again, the effects of the little L law in the story. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. You can can feel the accusatory finger of God, which is just. And hearing his his brother's blood cry from the ground, he turns and he says, what have you done? Pointing at Cain. Now you're going to be under a curse. So life under the knowledge of good and evil, even from the next chapter of the Bible, is one of accusation from wrongdoing, exposure, being caught in our transgressions, and and relationships being utterly undone in the worst possible manner, right? One brother killing his his other brother. And this happening right from the get-go when sin enters the world and us being under the knowledge of good and evil. So we see do this and live in the context of relationships and broken relationship is the result and accusation, good accusation leading to condemnation. 
Well, how about communities? This one is fascinating. Just a few chapters later, Abraham, kind of the big deal of the Old Testament, the father of all nations, is going to be given a promise from God. And so much of the story is going to flow out from here, right? In Genesis 1 through 11, you see the ripple effects of sin from a cosmic level. You see it from all these nations and where do even other languages come from? You see this Genesis 1 through 11. And then Genesis 12, we zoom in on one family. And the rest of Genesis is going to be about this family. And God makes this awesome promise to him that he's going to have land and he's going to have offspring as numerous as the stars. And ultimately, somebody from that line is going to be a blessing to the world. But Abraham says, how how am I going to know that this is going to happen, God? And this is, again, where we see this tree of knowledge of good and evil, God's little L law operative in a very surprising way. It's, it's, it's almost hidden here in Genesis 15. But as we read back on the story with New Testament eyes, there's this surprising, like, holy cow, this was there the whole time. Hear God's response to the question, how am I going to know? The Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possession. So pause. What's he talking about? He's talking about Moses and the Exodus. He's saying, for 400 years, your descendants, these people who are belonging to your line that I'm promising you today, this is what's going to happen. They're going to become enslaved by Pharaoh for 400 years. And then I'm going to rise up and I'm going to deliver them. And I am going to take them into this land that I'm promising you today. But now hear this. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And this is it. Verse 16, in the 14th generation, your descendants, Moses and the people, will come back here to the promised land for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. To which you're like, what? Who are the Amorites? Why does this matter? What a strange answer to the question. How am I going to know? But pay attention to the wording here. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. In other words, there's a people group, the Amorites, that are living in the promised land that the Israelites are going to come one day and live in. But there's another people group there right now who are living in the land under the law and God is keeping score. And he's measuring their transgressions until it bubbles up to one day, the transgressions are so many that he is going to kick them out of the land. And then Israel is going to come into the land and they're going to be given the law, a a clearer articulation, perhaps we could say, of the knowledge of good and evil. And what's going to happen? The exact same story. They're going to live in the land for a season and then God is going to keep score. And then their transgressions, their evil, their iniquities are going to be so many that he's going to give them the boot. He's going to exile them. So being under the do this and live, being under the law, little L or capital L, leads to the same effect in these communities that they're going to be measured, that one day it's going to bubble up so much and they're going to be kicked out of the land. This is what it's like to be under do this and live in the context of a community. Lastly, individuals. So we've seen relationships, communities, now I want to look at individuals. And more specifically, I want to look at the way being under the law, being under do this and live, or another way of saying this, don't do this and die, right? That's the language of our passage today. What is it like to be under that? in the human heart. How does this manifest? It comes from a very famous story. Even if you didn't grow up in church, maybe you've heard this phrase before, the writing on the wall. It comes from a a small 
Old Testament prophet, uh, the, the book of Daniel. And specifically what's happening is you have this king who's invited all of his lords, thousand plus, to come and have this rip-roaring party that he's gonna throw for them. That's all about himself. He wants everyone to see how impressive he is as a king. And so he, he takes these things from the Jewish temples and he desecrates them by filling them with wine and all his other liquors and this, this just epic party. And in the middle of this party, something really scary happens. Straight out of a horror movie. Let's read it. It says this in Daniel 5. Suddenly, in the midst of this party, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. So, so again, just what are we looking at this morning? The way that the knowledge of good and evil that is written on every human heart, how does it work? Well, in the case of this king who's trying to throw this party for all these people to be so impressive, the fingers of God somehow appear, the fingers of a human hand sent by God appear and start writing on this wall and no one can read it. It's written in a different language. But notice his response. Like, why, doesn't, why isn't he like, look at this party, huh? Even the, even the gods are pleased. No one can read it. Why is, his in, why is his initial reaction not, aren't I an amazing king? Even the gods are writing on the wall on how amazing I am. That's not his response. His response is instant terror, instant fear, instant feelings of I am not okay. Pale in the face. Legs are weak. Knees are knocking as this is happening, right? This instant feeling of I am not okay. So then the story continues and, and he calls in people. Who can come and interpret this wall? Tell us what this means. Clearly, this is from above. Clearly, this is way beyond our scope. And finally, Daniel comes in, the prophet Daniel. And, and King Belshazzar says, hey, I'll give you anything you want. Just interpret these words for me, these words on the, on the wall. And Daniel says, I don't want anything from you, but I will interpret these words. And here's what he says to the king. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. You have worshiped idols, like we heard about from Trike's sermon two weeks ago. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and your ways. What a picture of the way God works, that he holds your, hand, he holds your life in his hand. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote this inscription. And here's what the inscription said. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. What a picture of the way the law speaks to all of us. That the law says to us, you have been weighed on the scales of justice. And you knew this. It was seen in the pale face. It was seen in the legs shaking and the knees knocking that you have been found wanting. The very finger of God pointing at this king. Like we've seen it work in the context of relationships and communities, God, God pointing and saying, you've been measured and you've been found wanting. And now he's saying it to, to human hearts. You have been found wanting. And the finger itself is even the thing writing it on the wall. Like the imagery is so stark. This is how the law works. It's the finger of God writing, saying there is justice in this world and you're on the wrong side of it. There's a phrase in Christian theology uh, that dates back several hundred years. In Latin, it is lex semper accusat. It sounds German, accusat. Yeah. Uh, but it means that the law always accuses. 
This is how the law works. And, and for centuries, Christians have handed this phrase down. The law always accuses. This is how it works in life. This is how it works in the biblical storyline. For Jews and Gentiles, the law is operative. Knowledge of good and evil. And what does it do? It's a finger that points at you and says, you have been measured and you have been found wanting. Uh, I love trike for many reasons. Um, and, not but, uh, we were at a... We were at an event for church leaders once and he was kind of running the panel and, and somebody used, he threw out a Latin phrase like this and Trek just interrupts him and goes, what the heck does that mean? And the guy says it in English and he goes, well, why didn't you just say it in English? No one speaks Latin. <laughs> Such a trike thing to say. I have to justify myself for putting Latin on the screen because Trike's going to listen to this and he goes, why'd you do Latin? It's like, well, it's a phrase that's been handed down and it's cool. Lex semper accusat. But what does this mean? How does this look? Your heart for a day again is really helpful. The law, this is how it works, is a voice which sounds in the heart and the conscience. It's a real voice which afflicts man in his isolation from God. A voice that can and does arrive from anywhere and everywhere. Any accusation can function as law, whether it be society, family, or friends. It can even look like reading an article about how the way you're supposed to engage socially and feel like I am not a good social companion, right? These are derivative of ultimately the, what is truly good and evil. And the story has been, you need to do the good in order to be accepted. But if you do the evil, you will be found out. There are scales and you've been measured and you've been found wanting. And I love how the way he describes this, that this can arise out of anywhere. Because this is true, ultimately, because this has been true of human history, that everyone is under a knowledge of good and evil. That means we have so many examples in our life where we feel a sense of inferiority or superiority based on some little L laws, whether they belong to God and they're true or whether we've just made them up in our minds. It's like when someone, like maybe your mom says, oh, that person is so talented at their job. You and I probably don't hear that as like, yeah, they are really talented. What, what do you and I hear? My mom doesn't think I'm talented at my job, right? Like this is how the little L law starts to work. We feel accused. We feel exposed. We feel like we're not measuring up. There's a finger that's pointing at you and at me. And it sounds like do this and live. Or another one, where, where are my keys? You might say that to a spouse or a roommate or what have you. And what do what they hear? Why are you accusing me of hiding your keys, right? It's, like, it's just wild. The law can sound from anywhere. I, I think of it like uh, the movie, The War of the Worlds. This is an old one, but hang with me if you haven't seen it. Uh, the War of the Worlds is alien uh, life force comes in and attacks planet Earth, right? And the, the, the means of destruction are these tripods that stand 100 feet tall and they have this heat ray that blasts you and just instantly vaporizes you. And the Tom Cruise edition uh, is the best edition because we get Tom Cruise in his prime. And what does Tom Cruise do best in movies? He runs, yes. Wow, we're good. This is discipleship right here. <laughs> Tom Cruise runs constantly. And when, this, when these first come to the earth, there's this, there's this moment where like, they, they first crash land and then they rise up. And there's this moment of awe, of intrigue. And people start to kind of move closer and they're filming it and they have those old antiquated video cameras. They didn't have cell phones. Uh, this is like 2001. And, and they're getting closer and closer and closer until the first heat ray blasts somebody and just vaporizes them. And then the next scene is Tom Cruise running and running and running. 
and everyone is trying to get away from the, the, the heat of this ray that is, is finding them and, and ending them. And friends, this is, this is actually an amazing picture of what your life looks like, of what my life looks like. That we spend our time running, trying to keep up to standards of goodness, regularly looking around, like getting assaulted by articles from our phones saying, oh, I, I wasn't running the right way. I gotta make sure I'm not talking about TikToks or, or what have you. But we're also trying to outrun evil. We're trying to outrun our propensity to do the thing that we don't wanna do. And we feel the tiredness. We feel the fear of this heat ray catching us and maybe not physically destroying us in the moment, but exposing us and being under that heat, being under that, that sweaty palm feeling of I'm not okay and, and people know that. This is the whole new world that God is describing with this surprising verse that Jews are, are not unique for having the law, that everyone has a law and it works like this. It works like this. It works like this. It's a finger that points at you and says, you're not okay. You have been measured and you have been found wanting. Where then do we turn? In the midst of this, in these feelings of running and tiredness and being regularly caught by this heat ray and exposed and, and then on to the next, where do we turn? Well, I wanna look at a passage from John 8 where we see the finger of God appear again and it's a surprising result. What's happened is a woman has been caught in adultery and she's put before uh, a council of law teachers, capital L law, the law of Moses. And in the law of Moses, it says, if you commit adultery, you must be stoned to death. They only have the woman there for suspect reasons. It takes two to tango and the guy should be there as well, but he's suspiciously absent. So it's just the woman standing there. And these teachers of the law come to Jesus and they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Hear, hear the language, right? Accusation and deserving of death, right here in John 8. They're pointing at the woman saying she deserves to die. And now there's a double standard of accusation where they're pointing at Jesus and saying, how do you read this law? But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. It's the very, very image that we had in Daniel 5, the finger of God, the finger sent by God to write something. And the, the question as readers, especially if we have all of this hanging in the balance, is as Jesus is bending down and, and writing in the sand, what is he writing? Feel the tension of this moment, this this woman is caught and, she's be, and, and people are begging for her blood and they're turning to Jesus and saying, you're the arbiter of this. What do, you, what do you say? Verse seven, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Let any of you who are accusing her who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. And here is, the law's ultimate function. It's meant to be a mirror that turns us all back on ourselves and go, and, and go whoa, I am the king who, was, who had the writing on the wall. I have been measured. I have been found wanting. I am the one who is 
accused ultimately and deserving of death. And Jesus is showing them that. The passage goes on. Again, he stooped down and he began to write on the ground. This seems important. It seems like the writers really want us to see. He's writing on the ground. The finger of God is at work again. What is he writing? At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. I love that. The older ones first. The more life you live, the more you will see. I don't have the ability to cast a stone because you will regularly not measure up to the good and you will regularly not avoid the evil. So the older ones leave first until it's just Jesus with the woman standing there. And then we get verse 10. Jesus straightens up after writing in the sand and says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. What a marvelous response. What a better word than what has been previously written by the finger of God. In one sense, we're not told intentionally what Jesus is writing out in the sand. It's because we are told by Jesus himself what he's saying. He's not penning out the seventh commandment that says, don't commit adultery. Instead, he's straightening out. He's looking the woman in her eyes and says to her personally, neither do I condemn you. A better word of hope, rescue, protection, and then a promise. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's easy to read that, that verse and think, oh, he's, he's telling her now, no, don't, no, stop sinning. But what if it's a promise? What if it's now that I am here, now that I'm interrupting your life, now that I'm keeping you from death and you are seeing me as I am, as the death interrupter, as the death substitutor? Because that's what's happening here, right? Jesus is not winking at sin. He's not saying, hey, you can just do this and there's no consequences. He's seeing her and he's saying, there is a penalty that is in need here. There is a debt to be paid, but I'm going to take it when I am stoned to death on the cross, when I am going to bear the burden of the wrath of God, when I am going to be the one that pays the penalty for your sin, I am going to be the one that ultimately dies so that he can say to her, you are now free from sin. You are now free from the propensity to, to commit evil left and right. Jesus is saying to her and ultimately to us, I as, the, as God himself, am writing something new with my finger. And it's a better word that doesn't point at you, but points at me as the one who's going to receive penalty for sin. Gerhard Ferdinand again is so helpful on this. He says, Jesus was born under this law, under the finger of God, under the accusations of what the law is saying, to redeem them that are under the law. Namely, all of us. And how does he bring this about? How does he bring about this redemption? Only by dying and being raised again. He does not come to bring some new law. Praise God. He does not come saying, come on now, people, be nice. He does not come fit into any of our known schemes of meaning, our laws, our measurements, our scorecards, our standards. That is why, in the end, he must die. He must bring these to an end. At any rate, he comes only to die. This is why Jesus came to earth, is to die under the full penalty of the law. He goes on, the old Adam who took up the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil and who is now alive in all of us must be daily drowned, put to death in repentance. And the new man arise to live before God. Faith in the gospel, this good news that Jesus has taken our place. And he now speaks a better word to you and to I. 
Neither do I condemn you. This must be renewed each day. Yesterday's faith tends to slip into mere theory. The voice of the law sounds again. Each day we must hear anew that Christ is the end of the law and the gift of new life. Christ is the end of the law and the gift of new life. How does this intersect with our lives? Everywhere. It it intersects with our lives everywhere because the law is daily accusing you. It's the voice that appears everywhere, whether it's of the true knowledge of good and evil or derivative based on it that we're trying to keep in order to be justified and accepted by God and and, and other people. One example of where I I saw this intersect in in big ways uh, this week that really ministered to me uh, came from uh, a story of 7.2. This is a a marathon sticker uh, that is missing a few numbers. Um, 7.2 is normally actually 26.2, but we're we're missing a few because the individual who received the sticker or or maybe gets to receive the sticker didn't finish the marathon. Now, to be fair, this is probably 6.7 more than I would get if I ran a marathon. But uh, Josh Brooke, he's a member here at Hope, uh, ran the last Twin Cities marathon and and he didn't finish. And for uh, a a few months later, he, he wrote about his experience Uh, on a blog, and and this is what he says. I want to read it to you. He says, when race day finally came around in the most anticlimactic fashion possible, I suffered an injury and had to drop out of the race after only seven miles. As I hobbled to the spot where my wife and daughter were supposed to be cheering me on to my glorious victory, my failure was on full display and my anger was in complete control. And he he lets us into what, what was his mind saying to him? What was the law of his own conscience saying to him? God, why would you shame me like this in front of my family? Why would you even let me do this? Why wouldn't you protect me from it if you knew I was just going to get injured and drop out? Deeper and deeper, I spiraled as I limped for what seemed like a marathon in itself. But as I turned the corner, I saw my daughter waiting for her dad. And she was holding a sign that said, run, daddy, run. In that moment, you know, his daughter's holding a sign that's, that's saying, do, do this, right? His own daughter is holding a sign that's saying, do the thing that you're not going to do, that you're going to quit and stop. Think of the accusatory voice that is likely at play in Josh's mind. But then something marvelous happens. As I stepped off the road and limped towards her, she threw her sign on the ground. Then she toddled towards me and gave me a hug. I didn't realize, Josh said, I was hearing from Jesus that day. And I especially didn't think he was answering my angry questions, but he was. He was there in that moment when my daughter threw down her sign and hugged me. What a picture of the grace that Jesus gives to you and to me. That the signs that are telling us to do something in order to be accepted are thrown to the ground. And in their place, we receive a hug. We receive a kindness. We receive a gesture of, you are here. You are safe. I love you. This is what Jesus does to all of the signs of the law, all of the the do this and lives that we are hearing constantly. Jesus, like Josh's daughter, throws them on the ground never to be picked up again so that he can replace them with the personal better word. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. I want to close with one of the most skippable verses in the Bible. It's, a, it's, you know, Paul has these openings when he writes letters and he often says this, grace and peace to you from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of us, when we read this, myself included, are like, yep, 
the, the, the new covenant stuff. Thumbs up. And we just move on to like, all right, get into, the, get into the meat of the passage, right? But this passage itself is full of rich theology about who Jesus is and what he's doing. It's the whole new world reality that can be found even in half a sentence. And I want to I share with you from Martin Luther's A Commentary on Galatians, which is one of the most important books written in the last 500 years. If you, if you have time, just pick up a copy of it. It's like 99 cents on Amazon. And it's, it's just so good. He says this about this verse, this throwaway verse. He says, the apostle does not wish the Galatians grace and peace from the emperor or from kings or from governors, but from God the Father. Grace and peace from God the Father. He wishes them heavenly peace. The kind Jesus spoke of when he said, peace I leave unto you. My peace I give unto you. Worldly peace provides quiet enjoyment of life and possessions. But in affliction, particularly in the hour of death, our subject this morning, the grace and peace of the world will not deliver us. It won't be able to lift a finger to help us. However, the grace and peace of God will. They will make a person strong and courageous to bear and to overcome all difficulties, even death itself, because we have the victory of Christ's death and the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. The assurance of Jesus saying to you personally, neither do I condemn you. So in closing this morning, I just want us to think on this question. Where is God's where is God replacing the laws? Many accusations. There's many, the many finger points that you and I experience all the time with this better personal word of good news for you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word, which brings to us news from afar, not news from within. We need to hear about you and the salvation that, is, that comes to us from you, from your hand. God, I pray right now, that the many accusations that we are experiencing, uh, that you give us a sense of them, that you'd help us to see them clearly because they drive so much of our decision-making even on a daily basis. Help us to see them as they are so that as we come to this table, we might leave them here. We might leave them at the foot of the cross. We might receive your personal better word for us that you do not condemn us, that you have withstood the whole weight of our condemnation on the cross and risen again three days later to say it really is finished. Help us, Lord, to hear your good news now as we sing unto you as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.